This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you in part by the Homecoming Challenge. When you go back to your alma mater, give back. Visit homecomingchallenge.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to Dana Being Dana. That's me, and I'm thrilled you're with us. My show is about all different aspects of the human connection, things that bring us together and living life intentionally. Remote education in a pandemic and a critical Supreme Court decision have affected the college admissions process, which is already overwhelming and daunting to students and parents alike. Do you have children who are considering college soon? How do you best prepare for the process? Where do you even get started? And how do you come out on top? Joining me today are a Dean of Admissions, an education attorney, and the founder of an educational consulting company, and authors specializing in navigating institutions of higher learning. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you. We're glad, happy to be here. I'm thrilled you're here. When should people start the college application process? Well, Dana, thank you again for having us, but it really depends on what the ambitions of the family are. College can start as early, or a college process can start as early as elementary school in terms of awareness, right? Kids are exposed to their parents possibly wearing college sweatshirts, going to homecoming, and that influences what they envision college to be. ESPN's a great marketer of colleges. But the actual college admissions process probably begins towards the tail end of middle school leading into high school, where you start thinking about the courses that certain students have to take in order to be competitive applicants at some quote unquote elite schools. Couple that with being involved in extracurricular activities, obviously doing some standardized test prep if that is on their, in their purview. So we would like to say that college uh, admissions process begins towards the end of middle school leading into high school, but definitely please people do not wait until senior year. Do not wait. Don't wait. It's never too early. Never too early. What do colleges look for? I mean, it really depends upon you know what college school students are applying to. So obviously, students can apply to places like the most selective schools that are looking at high GPAs, the rigor of the curriculum. You know, we're in a test optional world and looking at test scores. But there are a lot of open enrollment colleges. There, there are schools that if you submit a transcript. You submit a test score if they want to, or you submit, you know, application fee, they'll accept you. I think one of the, you know, pieces of information a lot of people don't get is there are 4,000 college or universities throughout the country. 2,000 offer bachelor's degrees, and of those 2,000, most of them admit most of the students that apply. However, when you start thinking about these highly selective schools, then all of a sudden, you know, schools are looking at different things, and that's when it becomes very, very competitive. So what we would say is, you know, college is looking for, like, any number of things, but all colleges aren't looking for high SAT scores. All colleges aren't looking for 4.0 GPAs. All colleges aren't looking for people who are presidents of multiple organizations. Colleges are saying we want students to come here who want to be part of this community, who want to get an education, and who want to go on and change the world. I like what you said about the competition, because I want to talk about that a little bit later as it relates to mental health. Now, you're a dean of admissions. Correct. Um, and you have started a consulting business yes. in, in the education space Absolutely. to help families prepare for college, which is phenomenal. Thank you both for what you do. What advice do you have for students and their parents to prepare? I think the first thing I would say is to really begin to think about this process early and begin to have conversations about what college means to you as a family. It means different things to different people. 
Some people go to college to, you know, for the educational value of it. Some people go to college because they have aspirations to become doctors, lawyers, or go to other professional fields. Uh, some people go to college because, you know, it's a stepping stone for a sport or some type of other art. So, you know, there are all these different things that people are looking to college for. Uh, but on top of, you know, thinking about going to college, I think it's very important to talk about what is the cost of college. Like there are a lot of conversations that surround, you know, just this idea of just going to college. I want to go get an education, but there's a cost associated with that. How far away? How close do I want to be? And so the earlier these conversations happen, the better for the family so that everybody's clear on what is the goal here of us going to college. The marketplace is changing. Uh, you know, there are obviously lots of corporations that are removing the need to have a college degree to work in these places. Uh, college is expensive. So we really want families to be very early on in the process to think about why. Why are we going to college? Why is this important? Do you have any recommendations on state school versus private school? Again, very, very personal family decision. Uh, in my business, and I think Tim will co-sign on this, we really make sure that the pillars of the college search process, which is different than the college application process, or different than the admission process, but the search process is really dependent upon the cost, the location, uh, possible major and possible career. We wanna make sure that there is an alignment between the cost, where the student goes to schools physically, and, and what they're gonna do there, what it could lead to. So state school versus public school really depends on what is important to the family. If it's cost, then traditionally state schools have been less expensive, but again, if you go to a school that's private and possibly out of state, could they give you some merit money that could then offset the cost that you might have had to pay in state? So we want to make sure that families are looking at the right schools for the right reasons. And if it's going to be dependent upon cost, yes, start with in-state, but also understand that private schools, depending on where they are geographically, could offer you some merit money. Do you have any recommendations on HBCUs, Spelman, versus people? <laughs> <laughs> One of the dynamics that Tim and I have, which is great, is that I went to a predominantly white institution, Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Tim obviously is a graduate of Morehouse College in Atlanta. Um, we don't have a preference per se. We want families to be informed. We want families to look at both kinds of schools because we do think that there's a necessity for students, particularly black students, to understand what they're looking for at this critical time in their life. They're 18 to 22. Do you need some cultural difference? Do you need some cultural stability? Do you need to be somewhere that you've never been before? Maine, Connecticut. Bottom line is, it's a very, very personal decision, but we don't want anyone to overlook HBCUs, and we definitely don't want families to overlook predominantly white institutions, particularly if there's money attached. So again, it's really a personal family decision. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, you know, as it pertains to predominantly white institutions versus historically black colleges, and universities that we really want to articulate is like we've, as we've gone throughout the country touring uh, with our book, we decided to say we want to redefine success mm -hmm. and what does success look like? And so if we're going to applaud President Barack Obama for being the first black president going to Columbia. And then Occidental going to, first. He started Occidental, you're absolutely correct. Going to Occidental and Columbia, then going to Harvard Law and his wife going to Princeton and their, their great education. You also have to applaud Oprah Winfrey, who went to Tennessee State. You have to applaud Vice President Kamala Harris, who went to Howard and numerous other people who went to HBCUs. And so just there's no one path towards success. And so we want families to keep an open mind about the schools that they are thinking about, why they're thinking about them, and just not so much get caught up in the kind of what is the name, but what is going to be the experience, right. you know, what is going to be the cost of our family. And then there are also students who have special needs or there are other things that they need out of that college experience that move beyond the name. You mentioned your book. Tell us the title. 
and what it's about. The Black Family's Guide to College Admission, a conversation about education, parenting, and race. Uh, it's really um, a book, you know, about college admission, uh, but more specifically, you know, written, you know, from the viewpoint of, you know, two black parents. We're both parents, first and foremost, two educators, really kind of speaking to the, the black experience in this country and the things that families had to think about early on as they go about thinking about this college process that starts long before you actually complete an application. But, you know, where are you going to educate your children? You know, the conversation that happened with, between a predominantly white institution versus HBCU. And then ultimately the college admission process is going to be the same for no matter what. But there are a lot of decisions that happen leading up to that that we try and highlight in the book, not only for families, but also for educators who want to help, who want to support black students in the college admission process. I think one of the special things about our book, which is very unique, is that there's broken up into three parts. There's context, there's X factors, and there's process. I can argue that two-thirds of it, X factors and process is for anyone, black, white, green, red, or yellow. Doesn't matter. The context is where we do highlight the special considerations that black families have. HBCUs versus PWIs. The, the conversation that we have within our home about our educational choices we make for our children, private school versus public school very early on, where do you choose to live, suburbs versus the inner city. These are the things that have been happening within our homes that we wanted to make into a conversation in our book. And Tim and I have a very unique dynamic as well. I went to independent school my entire life, grades one through 12. My children go to private schools, independent schools. Tim is public school educated. He's fourth generation college student. I'm a first generation college student. So all these different pieces, we know that our audience has had these conversations within themselves, and we just kind of want to bring it to the forefront in our book. Since the pandemic and over the last couple of years, there have been so many things that have impacted the college application process. Can you talk about some of those? I think number one is that the pandemic made a lot of schools go test optional, which meant that because there were not as, as many opportunities to take standardized tests, schools had to eliminate that as a requirement. Uh, gradually, many schools are bringing that back and reintroducing it. But I'd like to think and applaud colleges for understanding that students were stressed out, test centers were not necessarily safe because of you know, uh, needing social distancing. So the bottom line is that many schools still remain test optional, and we applaud that. Right now, we're on the cusp of the SAT going digital in March 2024. The right. SAT will be on a tablet or a laptop, which I think is big. The PSAT actually will start that in the fall. Um, so those are the big changes. I mean, I think college got very, very savvy on how to do uh, open houses and do information sessions online. So again, I think there's a huge opportunity for students and families to learn about college online. But yes, the big thing that people are talking about the most, which is, again, of, of particular interest to both of us as an admissions reader and someone who helps prepare applications, is how the essays are going to be written given artificial intelligence. How are students going to use or not use artificial intelligence to write their college essays? I'm a big believer that we have to lean into the fact that artificial intelligence isn't going anywhere. Yep. Chat GBT is, is what it is. I do think it can be used as a brainstorming tool to help this generation that's used to talking to their phones or you know, you know, uh, taking videos to actually get ideas out of their head so they can have some kind of basis or formation uh, to format their essay. So I applaud uh, technology. I think families need to understand that we need to lean into this. Students do not submit an essay that's strictly via ChatGBT, but use it in a way that's constructive to the brainstorming process and possibly even the revision process. Yeah. No TikTok. No TikTok. <laughs> or threads. What about mental health? Uh, I think an additional thing 
uh, that, you know, obviously was bubbling up before the pandemic, but I think came as just kind of, you know, really addressing mental health in the college admission process, you know, kind of taking pressure off of, oh, I have to take these AP classes. I have to get this test score. I need to get into these institutions that have very low admit rate and really kind of, you know, pulling back and saying, you know, what is the priority here as students begin to think about college? You know, you know, where should they be going? You know, what should be they be thinking about? You know, should we, you know, as far as thinking about kind of the GPAs and all the different metrics that go into it, saying, you know, what are colleges really looking for? And pulling that back a little bit and saying, you know, what, what environment can students thrive in? You know, what environments, you know, can be supportive of students? You know, do students need to be applying to 20 and 30 institutions? Uh, we are firm believers that, you know, you apply between 8 and 12 schools. You have a safety school, which is someplace you feel very, you know, comfortable in. You have a, you know, target school. This is a place that, you know, I think I can get in, but depending upon how competitive it is. And then there's a reach schools. Uh, but then once you start applying to multiple schools, you know, one of the things that, you know, Shereem and his business talk about, you can apply to 30 schools, but you can also be denied 30 schools. Right. And what does that do for the mental health of children? And so we want students to be, we students and families to be very thoughtful about where am I applying? Why am I gonna applying? You know, adhering to deadlines, you know, not waiting till the last minute. So there are a lot of things that going into the college admission process, as far, if you're thoughtful about it, that can really kind of pull some of this anxiety that's already kind of built into it. And I think that's so important. I think having that mental health understanding and how it impacts the process um, is critical. We're gonna talk about a lot of these different changes, including the Supreme Court decision of this year when we come back. You're watching Dana Being Dana, where we are talking all about the college admission process. Don't go away. This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you in part by the Homecoming Challenge. When you go back to your alma mater, give back. Visit homecomingchallenge.com for more information. Welcome back to Dana Being Dana, where we are talking all about the college admissions process. Nothing has been more important and critical this year than the Supreme Court decision that overturned over 40 years of legal precedent and rejected race-conscious admissions in higher education at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Terry, you're an attorney in this space. Can you briefly recap the facts of the case and the findings? Sure, I'd be happy to. The Supreme Court was considering whether or not the admissions processes used by Harvard University and the University of North Carolina satisfied the Constitution because those processes considered race as a factor in the admissions process. Both Harvard University and the University of North Carolina considered diversity in their student body as a core value in their processes. And so they used what had been 45 years of Supreme Court precedent that allowed a university to consider race as one of many factors in its admissions decisions. Ultimately, the Supreme Court decided 
those two programs did not satisfy the Constitution and really did so for three reasons. The first reason the Supreme Court said it didn't satisfy strict scrutiny. What does that mean? That means that the Supreme Court thought that those two admissions programs and the practices that they used didn't really reach the objective criteria that the institution was striving for, diversity. The second thing that they said was neither of the programs, neither Harvard nor the University of North Carolina, had an endpoint in which they would stop using race as a factor in their admissions process. Harvard and the University of North Carolina response was, well, we haven't got there and we don't see a path into us getting where we want to be without doing so, therefore we don't have an endpoint. But that didn't satisfy the Supreme Court and quite candidly, or precedent that said you must have an endpoint. But lastly, and, and maybe most importantly, is the Supreme Court said that considering race in the admissions process as a factor is a negative factor. And that if you give one race a leg up, thereby doing so you are giving somebody else, putting somebody else at a disadvantage. And therefore the Supreme Court found that it violated the Equal Protection Clause and certain provisions of the Civil Rights Act and struck down those two programs as unconstitutional. The plaintiffs was a student group called Students for Fair Admissions, mm -hmm. and they argued that those two programs disadvantaged Asian applicants in the admissions process. So what does that mean in terms of what students can do when it comes to the application process? So for the students, it doesn't really change their application process. For the university, it changes it drastically. Mm -hmm. They can no longer consider race as a factor among many factors when they're making the decision as to admit a given student. But what the students still can do and what the institutions still may consider is a student essay. A student may write about his background or her background and may discuss in their application race if it is something that is important to their upbringing and important to their background. And for the institution, if that discussion of race is drives toward of an objective criteria as to why that student should be admitted to that institution in aligns with its missions and its goals, that application can be considered. It's also imperative to understand that the essays as being fundamental to historically, I mean, it's almost like a rite of passage, right? All of us wrote college essays to get into college or possibly graduate school. So that part hasn't changed. And it's even more essential now more than ever for students to include their cultural, spiritual, religious, lived experience. And that's not new. And that's not new. I, I mean, I, we were recently quoted in Time Magazine where I explained, as my education company has had, I've had students write about uh, going to synagogue for, for a holiday and some of the gender imbalances that happen there. That screams, I'm Jewish, which right. is good for them that they want to highlight their cultural um, familial traditions in that capacity. So, so, so it doesn't have to be traumatic or dramatic? No, 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 by no means. Do are we encouraging black families, Latinx families, indigenous families, anyone to say, okay, look at me, I'm X because I went through Y. Be personal, allow it to be reflective, document your life, do something or excuse me, write about something that is unique to you. And arguably, if you choose to, your lived experience, I guess, which could be cultural, religious, spiritual, political, even or racial. And for the past 20 years that I've been in admission, 
this has been happening in essays, like especially the most competitive schools in the country. If you take in consideration their, you know, schools that have 30, 40, 50, 60,000 application, applications, everybody's smart. Everybody has, you know, you know, great test scores that they submit them. Everybody has great letters of recommendation. So how are you differentiating, differentiating yourself? So this essay becomes a way, you know, saying, how can I personalize myself in this process? How can I say, how am I unique? How am I different from other people? And how am I just not the same? So what we don't want students to do is regurgitate um, you know, that you your extracurricular activities list because there's going to be lots of people who are in band. There's going to be lots of people who played sports. There are going to be lots of people who went to mission trips. But what did you get out of those experiences that you're going to bring to this college campus is going to be very, very important. Mm -hmm. So tell me what motivated you two to write this book, The Black Family's Guide to College Admissions. Well, I think we just go back to that moment we were at in uh, 2020. Uh, we were in our houses. We were in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, there was a racial awakening of sorts that was happening in our country with the unfortunate death of uh, George Floyd and numerous other events. And we as lifelong educators said, you know, what can we do to kind of help move this conversation forward? And we wanted to speak directly to black families as thinking about the experiences that they had and how can we support them as they, you know, prepare to help their children go to college. And then, you know, beyond that, we wanted to shine a light on historically black colleges and universities. Been around for over 150 years, have been the foundation of education in the United States. You know, thinking, talking about the Supreme Court case, it was just a little over maybe 60 years ago that, you know, desegregation, you know, right. fell apart, then HBCUs were not the same, at the same level they were. And now here we're at, at this place to where, you know, some black students may have to go back to depending upon um, you know, historical black college universities. And so we wanted to have all these conversations, but most importantly, we wanted to kind of redefine what success looks like. The success happens at predominantly white institutions, happens at historical black college universities, and it can happen by not going to college. Like we fully acknowledge that there's a changing in the marketplace and that students are other paths. Shereen just talked about trade schools and other opportunities for students. So we want to have all conversations on the table, but we want families to be very thoughtful. And this is just simply a resource. And we were very intentional in the title about saying it's a conversation. It is simply a conversation about education, parenting, race, and what's best for your family. And is there application for um, non-black families? Absolutely. I mean, the third part of the book is broken up into three sections, context, X factors, and process. So whether you're indigenous, Latinx, white, like, again, we want to make sure that two-thirds of the book speaks to anybody who wants to go to college. But one-third of the context addresses that I think are unique to black families. But again, we did not write the book that you need to read it from cover to cover. So the process, I think, is applicable to anyone. And we want to make sure that families understand that there are people, professionals out there who can help you that don't necessarily look like you, but also that can kind of open your world, world up a little bit more and introduce you to school that you may not have considered otherwise. Tim has been adamant that we want to make sure that educators and allies get this book so that A, they understand black families more, but also understand their role in educating families in general about the 4,000 colleges and universities in the country, about trade schools. We want to make sure that this conversation does not stick to the 25 to top or top 50, whatever the top means, we want to make sure that we show, uh, shine the spotlight on schools that don't get enough love and make sure that our families know that there are different pathways to success. You spoke before about being a first-generational graduate. Um, can you talk about the advice you have for students 
who would be first generational um, college graduates and or they don't have a strong support system. This book, I think, is intended, you know, more so for, for parents to pick up. But, you know, if what about kids, you know, picking up the book and what advice do you have for those navigating that space on their own? So again, very intensely, we call it the, the family's guide. And we want it to be a family decision where your parents and students, parents and children are partnering together to come to the best decision for them, whether that's about cost, whether it's about location, possible major, possible career. As a first generation student, I'm gonna be very clear, my father um, was a UPS truck driver, worked 30 years, sent me to private school, thank you, dad. My mom was a registered nurse who did have her associate's degree, but wanted to make sure that her child, her only child, had educational opportunities that she never had. All that said, the process starts earlier. The kids who, are, who have an advantage in the, particularly the four-year college admissions process understand that the process begins in seventh, eighth, and ninth grade when they're choosing classes, getting involved with extracurricular activities, understanding that their summers matter. Those are the kids who are winning or earning the spots at some of the elite college universities. So if we can start this process earlier, understanding that when it starts and what it entails, I think will uh, shrink that information gap and then the choice is yours. So we want to make sure that whoever wants to go to college, black, white, green, yellow, or purple, but particularly for first-generation students, if you don't have the information at home or you don't have it at your school, you don't feel like you can engage with your school counselor, go straight to the process section and it will help you. That's great. That's great. What advice do you all have? You work with many different educational institutions. What, do you, what advice do you have for them and for you all, for some of the students and the families that you work with about this whole process, given the Supreme Court decision, given all the impact and changes of the pandemic. Um, there's so many things that are unknown right now. And so what advice do you have for people or institutions in navigating that space? Sure, I'll, I'll cover advice for institutions. Um, and I think the, the most important advice is that colleges and universities do not have to give up their value of diversity, equity, and inclusion because of the Supreme Court's decision. They cannot consider race as a factor, among others, in the admissions process, but there are other things that colleges and universities can do to adhere to that value. They can recruit students by looking at geography. They can look at socioeconomic factors. They can look at first generation. They can look to essays. And there may be other strategies that they can think about doing that will help them achieve the goals that they want to achieve while still complying with the Supreme, Court, uh, Supreme Court's ruling? Uh, the biggest piece of advice is have this conversation in your home. When families begin to talk about this process, there's a lot of, well, I heard this happened over here, or this student did this. There's so much that goes on in a college admission decision that has little to nothing to do with other students that it's really individuals. And so we want to cut down on the misinformation. I call it the wine and cheese circuit. Go in and say, hey, my state student got into, you know, Northwestern. This is what they did. Well, that's what they did, but you following that roadmap can drive you off a cliff. It really needs to be an individually family process. Thinking about in the home is like, you know, you know, how much money do we have available to support this? Do we want you to go close to home? What are the needs that you have to support you? Are you interested in, in Greek life or any number of different things? But the conversation needs to happen within the household and not hearing all the noise outside and not comparing yourself to other students, but really thinking about, you know, who am I? What can I accomplish? and what's best for me as I go about the college admissions process. I like that, yeah. Again, I, I piggyback on everything Tim says. I think we've thought long and hard and we're doing uh, the best we can to really amplify our, 
our, our, our voices and use our platform to help families understand that this process should be very intentional, should be very personal, but that college isn't for everybody. And that in America, there are different things that you can do to be deemed successful. Um, do we as educators believe in college? Absolutely. But we are not going to stand on this rock saying, go to college or you'll be, you'll be a failure. No. We're going to say, here's the information about college admissions. Here are a vast number of universities to consider. During these tender ages of 18 to 22, hopefully not 25, you can kind of get this piece of your life done. I think it's advantageous if you're not going into a whole lot of debt, parents and students. We want to make sure that we're very clear about that, that there has to be a way for us to make it very clear to families, going to college is not equal becoming rich. Right. And, and that's something that we want to make sure that we amplify. That's definitely true. Well, I appreciate <laughs> all of the advice that you've given um, and the diversity of perspective. And there's so many different ways to be successful um, and to find success. So I appreciate each of you for joining me here. We appreciate you for uh, allowing us to share our book, share the stage with the, with the attorney, and more importantly, giving your audience love on getting your platform. Thank you. College and the decision of whether to attend or not and how to pay for it can be one of the most important decisions of your life and the lives of your kids. Navigating that process, especially now, may be challenging, but there are resources that are out there and that are available to you. And hopefully, with the right counsel, your children will make the right choice for them. Thank you to my esteemed guests for joining me for this very important discussion and for sharing your stories and your expert advice. Special thanks to our incredible sponsors. Hopefully you've been entertained, if not encouraged or inspired. I do not promise to be an expert, nor do I have all the answers. I'm just Dana being Dana. See you next time. This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you in part by the Homecoming Challenge. When you go back to your alma mater, give back. Visit homecomingchallenge.com for more information.